Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin. Once again, finally, after a long absence, high above the Rideau River, which, Stephanie, isn't quite as high as I thought it might be. It's certainly not as high as the Ottawa, which is raging still as we record this on Thursday, May 2nd. Yeah, so shout out to all the uh, first responders and volunteers who've been dedicating their time to try and help the city and the surrounding areas uh, and all the individuals who are in trouble. We're thinking of you and so hoping the best for Ottawa. I think the, the water was expected to crest this week, but unfortunately we've had nonstop rain really for, for weeks and it doesn't look like it's going to be giving up anytime soon. Yeah, and so by the time uh, we post this uh, the second week of May, that there may be further developments. Uh, Stephanie, what are we going to talk about on, on our podcast today? So we're going to do another catch-up episode uh, this week because there's so much that we're still trying to catch up on, some of it dating back a few months, actually. We're good, but I think the most important thing we want to talk about is our new blog. Right. Right, where our empire is expanding. Right, and, and so we've called this a blog called Intrepid. We're so creative. <laughs> <laughs> we're geniuses. This is inspired by William Stevenson, empowered by big academia. Yes, it's it, we're, you know, we're making so much money off of this. I right. just don't know how I'm going to spend we, it. But you know, it, we've <laughs> we've also uh, developed over the course of the two years we've been working on this podcast now a number of uh, of guests, including frequent guests who have come on board as as founding uh, editors for the blog project, and it's actually quite the consortium. Uh, and we're looking forward to product being produced not just by uh, these editors, but also from others. Uh, in the uh, broader national security and intelligence community, including, we're hoping, uh, people within government who might be prepared to delve into some of the geekery. Uh, and we, our editorial policy emphatically invokes the concept of geekery that uh, otherwise is sometimes lost in the uh, in the conversations we have about national security, uh, much in keeping with the sort of conversations we've had on the podcast. So we're going to keep up with the podcast, but we're adding written content. And the other thing too, Stephanie, over the course of the last two years, we've we've actually done a fair amount of preparation for some of our episodes, uh, 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 crib notes for some of the things we talk about. Those can easily be converted into uh, written content. Uh, also, sometimes we spend time on, on Twitter, tweet length strings. And again, those are the sorts of things that with a little bit uh, more articulation. And, you mean Twitter and threads? Twitter threads, yeah. With a little bit more articulation and development can be a blog post that will have a, a little bit more permanence. Uh, and so that's where we're going. Uh, we're we're consciously emulating just security and lawfare in the U.S., but with Canadian characteristics. <laughs> That's exactly it. So I just want to give a shout out to some of our, our founding editors, uh, Amar Amar Singham, as well as Jess Marin Davis, Tomas Junot, Michael Nesbitt, and Leah West. It's it's a really great crew. I'm super excited. And as you pointed out, if you go to our about page, the, the photos get increasingly happy right. as they go along. You have Amar Michael and Leah are very, very happy. They're very happy to be there. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. No, so it's good. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a number of posts up there already. And we would like to, you know, if you like, if you like the podcast, maybe you'll like the blog version too. It gives us an opportunity to utilize some of the extra research that we're doing for the podcast or if we have something that we want to say. And to build uh, more broadly the community of people who are uh, writing and, and researching in this area and, and give them an opportunity to showcase some of their work and contribute to policy-relevant and, again, very geeky sorts of analyses that can feed into our conversations. Yeah, it's like we take really dense national security things and make them more geeky. <laughs> it's great. We're such a we actually do have a section of the, of the blog that we've tentatively titled Hard Dilemmas and keeping with uh, sort of the uh, issues that we deal with on this uh, podcast. 
All right. So what are we going to talk about uh, above and beyond self-promotion? Uh, what are we going to talk about in terms of subject matter? Well, I thought I would just mention a few things. My first post on the blog was about the budget. So I just thought I would highlight the national security elements of the budget. You know, again, <laughs> making very dull national security that much more dull. I went and saw the opening of C-59 and you've actually testified as well as Leah West and Michael Nesbitt. And a couple others, yes. And so, a couple others. So, so this was on the 29th. So you can tell us what you did on your um, spring vacation. Sure. Basically coming out of uh, some reporting again that uh, I'm going to call him friend of the podcast. He's never been on the show, which I think is actually an oversight in our part. But Stuart Bell has done a series on dangerous Canadians or Canadians who've gone abroad to engage in violent extremism. The terrorism report, the building resilience against terrorism, uh, the brat. (laughs) <laughs> strategy, but the, the public report on the terrorist threat report last year, from December of last year. Which we spent some time talking about. Which we spent some time talking It's been amended again. Yes, the Second Amendment. Uh, so we'll talk a bit about that. And then finally, there's this bizarre case out of Toronto that I've wanted to talk about. Yeah. Uh, apparently, the CRTC can can come to your house and execute a search warrant with the RCMP. Yeah, and... I had no idea. Well, you mentioned <laughs> this. I think we referred to this case last time we got together, and I, I was puzzled by it because I hadn't I wasn't aware of the sort of powers that the CRTC might have. And, and so I did a little bit of digging and had some conversations uh, on the bus <laughs> with it's people in this area. It's the best place to have conversations Better Ottawa, than I yeah. do. And, and, uh, and so I have some information about how the CRTC can do this kind of work in the cyber area. Uh, and so a very interesting case. Indeed. So the starting point, Stephanie, the budget. Yeah. I, I mean, what are the headlines? Like, uh, you know, the budget really didn't get a lot of attention this year because apparently there was some other political scandal happening that will remain nameless for the purpose of this podcast. Yes, although, <laughs> although there is an allusion to it on our blog. Because there is. Uh, this is the issue of Attorney General Independence. And, and there's actually a slightly different take that was uh, provided by Attorney General Ron Basford back in 1978 in a national security case about the degree of independence that the Attorney General must exercise. And so I, just, I figured I should put up a, a blog post, a little bit of history, uh, because it was in the in the front and center in the public eye. So yeah. Hashtag not helping. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the federal budget, and usually like people are always interested in, okay, well, what tax cuts or tax raises that they're going to be or what goodies are out there. So national security doesn't get a lot of attention. So I thought I'd actually try and figure out, you know, we did this a little bit on the podcast last year. So I thought I'd try and do it a little bit more in depth this year. So really, I think the headlines are are really cybersecurity in terms of the budget. Last year, we actually got the first hints of what Canada's cybersecurity strategy would be in the budget. So there really isn't that much new. But what is kind of interesting is that there's going to be 144 0.9 million dollars over five years. That's looking at protecting Canada's critical cyber systems, in, particularly in finance, telecommunications, energy, and the transportation sectors. Now that includes 22.9 million from within existing CSE resources. And, you know, I was trying to figure out, okay, well, what does this mean? I think this is a post Bill C59 item that basically we know that there's going to be cyber defensive actions and that's going to help that. But I think also probably some initiatives just to help resilience generally. So I think that's uh, pretty important. The other thing that's kind of really interesting on this side was the fact that there's going to be a lot of funding geared towards helping government agencies do more outreach to the private sector as well as academia on the threats, you know, I guess cyber threats as well as, you know, threats to intellectual property, insider threats, things like this. And this is something we saw hinted at in Director David Vigneault's speech, which I always refer to, I think, on almost every podcast. But I think it was a significant speech where he basically talks about, you know, hey, business community, 
you need to really start thinking about who your partners are and what you're doing because actually there's a national security implication here too. So that's really interesting that, you know, this is something the government wants to do this. So that kind of then goes into this larger theme that's also in the budget, which is that of economic national security. And, and this to me is really fascinating because it, it's kind of in a clear priority of this government. I would actually say it probably started under Stephen Harper with some of the attention to Chinese state-owned enterprises, but this is something that has kind of united both parties right now. So what's going to be really interesting is that this idea of economic national security is, is devoting a lot of attention to how we actually think about the way the economy relates to national security, and, and that's that's pretty significant. And um, I, I strongly suspect that you know whoever wins in October of this year, that that would probably be something that that should continue. So other issues that I think are important. So right now there's an interim management board of the RCMP, which we've mm. talked about. And that, correct me if I'm wrong here, that was basically it's to kind of do oversight in yeah. the way that we talk about oversight. A, a civilian oversight board, which is very common amongst police services in the country, but has not existed for the RCMP. So a management board that implicates a, a civilian oversight. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I hadn't realized, but of course the word's interim's in there. So they're actually going, because they, they have to actually put in uh, legislative changes to make that happen. Right. So you have to amend the RCMP Act. Yeah, and they're going to do that, but also the RCMP Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, mm. which, you know, if you have a problem with the RCMP, presumably that's where you go, is going to be amended. So it's also going to be doing the CBSA as well. Yeah, that's actually really important because, uh, you know, there, I, I think there's a misunderstanding, and, and I had that sense from some of the questions when I appeared on C59, that we're just layering additional review body on additional review body, a complaints body on a complaints body, but actually there's a reorganization here. And so the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, which is a part of C-59, will have a National Security and Intelligence scope or remit. But that, of course, is only a small part of what the RCMP and CBSA do. So there's still room for a complaints slash review body that will have a jurisdiction in relation to the vast bulk of everything else law enforcement at the federal level does. It exists presently for the RCMP in the form of the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, as you've suggested, but there's nothing, there has been nothing for the CBSA. When the Arar Commission report came out in 2006, Justice O'Connor actually recommended that the CBSA be put with and pooled with RCMP for purposes of review and complaints because they're both law enforcement agencies and they both enjoy what's known as police independence. And you have to be very concerned about uh, an outside body somehow intervening in an ongoing police investigation. And so those sorts of sensitivities would be common for both uh, CBSA and RCMP. And that's finally what we've arrived at in essence, slightly different from what the Arar Commission recommended and in Zira to deal with national security and intelligence across the system, and then a more specialized uh, body to look at the rest of law enforcement from a complaints and review uh, perspective. I think that's really important. Now, I'd add that it, while it's announced in the budget, it's not in the budget legislation. This particular reform is not in the budget legislation, and so it awaits a different uh, bill unlikely that any bill now tabled in the House of Commons would pass prior to the parliament rising for the summer and then being dissolved for the election. So this would be the next parliament. And so it really will depend, its fate will depend on on the government in power. I know, but, you know, the, uh, having spoken to people at, at public safety, there's a lot of legislation that's going to be introduced in the next six weeks, which uh, is crazy. Every but. government does that. It puts stuff in the shop window, but very little of what's but I can't think this is the kind of thing that's particularly going to bring customers in. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but uh, it is common for 
for governments in the last few months of a, of a parliament to introduce legislation en masse without much opportunity for it to pass. Right, but I, I agree with you in your broad point. I mean, the whole thing with this review is that 97% of what C- CBSA deals with is not terrorists and spies or national security function. It's drugs, it's crime, it's people trying to smuggle other people in. Like, you know, we can have a conversation about whether that constitutes national security. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you you know, if and uh, right now I don't think there's a place to really direct your your complaints. Nothing for complaints, although as we know, because we had a conversation with the ENZI COP, that is the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, that they're undergoing uh, or conducting a review in relation to CBSA right now. That's right, yes. And that would be a broad systemic review, my assumption is. But there's no complaints mechanism per se. And more than that, uh, even if the uh, NCCOP considers a a first review as it's doing now, going forward, I think there's a need for an expert body to look at uh, technical issues of law and compliance, especially for the CBSA, which administers more than 100 different statutes, uh, to get into the weeds in a way that NCCOP, because of its broad remit, and I think its focus ultimately will be on efficacy rather than compliance issues. NZCOP probably wouldn't be equipped to do on an ongoing basis. Uh, and of course, NZCOP has a national security and, and, and uh, intelligence uh, focus strictly. And so there is a need for a different uh, expert body that, that will focus on the broader array of, of RCMP and CBSA issues. Absolutely. So there's really just three other things that I'll highlight here, and you can read about it on the blog if you're more interested. There was, of course, uh, perhaps the only thing really that caught people's attention was the border security element. I think people were expecting more money to be spent on border security uh, and some controversy about the fact that there's legislation in the budget that's going to make some changes. Yeah, again, and controversy, especially amongst the immigration bar. So the my colleagues who do immigration law are very unhappy with the changes, uh, which are essentially uh, exempting or excluding from the refugee adjudication process uh, persons who have uh, uh, sought refugee status in other jurisdictions uh, that are not enumerated in the Act, but but will in practice be at present, uh, as I understand it, essentially the Five Eyes Partners, uh, because we have an agreement with them on immigration. And so it's touted as uh, an effort to deal with forum shopping. By forum shopping, you mean like that refugees just don't keep trying to hit up countries Right, exactly, which which seems uh, reasonable and plausible. But my understanding is that uh, it's an augmentation of essentially the safe third party concept, which in the U.S. context has been very controversial. I'm not going to speak on this issue. I'm not an expert in it, but I've certainly had conversations with those who are, who are, are not happy. Right. And I'm not, this isn't my, I mean, I've always felt that like, you know, one of the unfortunate after effects of 9-11 was the securitization of the immigration debate. Uh, Kent Roach has actually written very well on this, I think, but for another podcast, perhaps. Um, So two other things, there's a whole lot of provisions about anti-money laundering, as well as anti-terrorism finance. So boosting this, um, it'd be great to get someone from FinTrack maybe on one time to Mm -hmm. talk about this. Don't don't want to spend the whole episode talking about it. And then uh, finally, there's, and this is an unfortunate thing, but the amount of money that will be going towards religious institutions, community institutions, protecting themselves from hate motivated attacks is being doubled from two million a year per to four million per year. And that's just an unfortunate reality that we that we need to do that. I'm glad the money's there, just to be clear, given all the attacks we've seen recently on religious institutions, it's it's an unfortunate necessity. Yeah, and actually that's interesting timing in the sense that uh, just earlier this week, and so again, we're recording this on, on May 2nd, the uh, Statistics Canada, I believe it is, released its report on hate crimes. So every year it releases a report on on hate crimes and the and changes over time. And the numbers are are quite uh, discouraging in the sense that uh, yeah they're they're spiking in terms of relative reporting. It's still relatively small in, in the vast 
universe of different crimes that are in the criminal code, but they are they are ticking up quite significantly. How much of that is reporting? How much of that is an actual increase in incidents? These are always the question one asks, and I'm not an expert in this. It, it actually also segues into our conversation about Bill C-59 because, of course, yes. the, the emergence or the renewal or the modern manifestation of hate and the normalization to a certain degree of hate since 2016 is front and center in some of the conversations about this uh, speech crime, which we've talked about periodically, that is the promotion and advocacy of terrorism offenses in general. And so there is a constituency of which I'm a part that thinks that the Bill C-51 crime, promotion and advocacy of terrorism offenses in general, was so uh, broadly textured as to be uh, uncertain, vague, and and unconstitutional because it didn't have some of the features that were part of the equivalent a crime promotion and advocacy of hate, uh, including a, an obligation that the person really intend that promotion, that is, that was the purpose. The speech was directed at the purpose of promotion and advocacy of the actual hate, uh, plus some defenses like the defense of truth or religious commentary, et cetera. Uh, those are features that saved the hate crime provision from constitutional challenge under free expression when it came to the Supreme Court in 1990. Uh, so that that's my comment. The, the other side of the conversation really is, look, we really do need a terrorism speech-related crime that fills a gap. Now, you and I had this conversation before when we had that episode on speaking like that. Yeah, when you made me say all those terrible things. Right. I remember that well. So the question is how big a gap is there? Because we've got already counseling, which is colloquially known as incitement. We've got uttering threats. We've got, in the right circumstance, participation in a terrorist group or instructing a terrorist activity or facilitating a terrorist activity. All of these can capture speech acts. So what gap really is there? I, you know, I think that there might be room to have a conversation about whether there's a gap there, especially after the Hamden case that came out of northern BC, which we've talked about on this podcast, where at issue was a counseling offense and the person was ultimately found not guilty, albeit I think part of the problem there was the way in which the evidence was managed. Uh, so maybe there's room for a gap, but at the very least, it seems to me we could accomplish the policy objectives behind filling that gap with a more creatively structured uh, promotion and advocacy offense that built on the precedent involving hate. Uh, right now in Bill C-59, it's a rollback all the way to a counseling offense, which is arguably slightly broader than conventional counseling. There's some dispute and debate about that. It'll be very interesting to see what the Senate does with this, because this was a common, at least on the day I was there, was a common conversation. And so keep in mind that if you make any amendments to Bill C-59, the whole thing has to go back to the Commons for its reconsideration. And so the concern is that that will slow down the whole process and we're running out of legislative time. So yeah. there's a lot of concern about uh, how this relatively minor feature, a speech crime that's frankly never been used, and our speech crimes, including hate crimes, are rarely used. And I think, I think some of the points being made uh, in the panel after mine uh, at uh, the C-59 hearings, which is, Sometimes it's not about the substantive law. In fact, it's often not about the substantive law. It's often about those laws that we're prepared to prosecute. And you and I have had this conversation as well about terrorism crimes. Why do we see so few cases? Partially because they're complex, possibly partially because of the resources that are devoted to things like hate crimes and the investigations that are undertaken in support of prosecutions. So it's very difficult to disaggregate sort of the black letter law and what's in the criminal code versus these other structural issues. Um, my worry is that sometimes Parliament rushes to create paper tigers in the criminal code uh, in the view that that solves whatever social problem and ill that they're designed to confront. 
but the reality is that the criminal code is a blunt instrument, and if it's not really enforced adequately, it amounts to very little. So I think that's probably right, and we want to be careful here. And I also, you know, some of our listeners may have noticed that I've also been worried about the timeline on this. I did read the um, testimony for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, who, you know, they've been kind of ringing the alarm bell about the rise of anti-Semitism in Canada. What they're worried about is the way it was constructed that it could be read to actually only apply to one person as opposed to counseling one person as opposed to counseling a group of people. I think Ralph Goodale, yeah. the minister, had spoken about that, saying, yeah. no, that's not how it's intended. Well, it, but was, it was amended in the Commons uh, right. to sort of amplify its scope, its aperture. Um, it's still a counseling offense, though, right? And right. So the issue is whether uh, promotion and advocacy is slightly different than counseling. The government view is it's not. Uh, there's a debate about that. Right. So, okay, that's because uh, that was one of the, the the interesting things that they found. They said, you know, like the way this propaganda is spreading, do we need to make sure, you know, given social media, that this is something we need to consider? So I, I thought that was a reasonable concern, but I'm not, uh, you're the lawyer, Craig, you fix it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, again, as a lawyer, I can say that sometimes the problem isn't with the law. It's with the way the law is applied. Implied. Okay. Yeah. And so you think that this is, could be something that... Well, why do we have so few hate crime cases, right? Especially in the current environment. And so they're they're vanishingly rare. I mean, there's like a handful of cases a year. You mean the crimes or the prosecutions? The prosecutions. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, is, and that, is that because the law is hard or is that because... Yeah, because, because the law is hard. And, and frankly, I will say this as a libertarian, I'm not sure that we really want us to martyr speech and put people in jail for speech acts, plain and simple. And I'm not sure putting them in jail would necessarily reform them. And I think you risk the prospect of further radicalization to violence in a, in a jail setting. Uh, but nevertheless, if you're going to introduce new crimes on the theory that there's a social ill there that, that requires a fix, you have to look not just at the existing law, which is quite expansive, but also ask the question, are the inadequacies of the existing law related to the way that law is drafted, or are there broader systemic issues about how they're investigated and prosecuted or not? Okay. So maybe this is a good opportunity for you to speak to the other issues that were raised during, a, what, what do you want to call it, like Intrepid Podcast um, Field Trip Day <laughs> to the Senate. You had mentioned to me that that Skyda had come up, some of the, the no-fly list again. Do you, do you want to speak to that? Oh, and by the way, I would encourage all of our listeners to go to Parlview, which is the, the website where you can watch all the uh, committee testimony, because Craig has a new suit. <laughs> yes. and, and an occasionally grumpy face. Yes. And it's, I, I, uh, you I, can like, see. I was like an adventure in my new suit. It's, it's good. My, my, my <laughs> My uh, wife said that it, I, this is the point in my career where I have to look like I actually made it through law school by you know, <laughs> dress, dressing appropriately. Well, I feel like you're letting the, the academy down, Craig, by, <laughs> so by, by dressing I'm well. coming for Phil, like I say. Right, fair. Uh, Never gonna, oh, okay. Don't miss. <laughs> so two issues I would just point out in, in addition to the terrorism promotion and advocacy offense. So yes, there were some questions about the Security of Canada Information Now Sharing Act after amendment would be Disclosure Act. Of course, we spent a podcast last episode talking to Sophie Beecher about some of those aspects. I hope that podcast is useful, actually, for some of the deliberation in the Senate, because we got into the weeds in a way that I think podcasts would be Podcasts are always useful, correct? <laughs> Which I think, you know, was sort of responsive to some of the, the issues that came out. So I, I just flagged that. The, the second set of issues, which came up on a regular basis, at least for the testimony I saw, was the issue of the no-fly list, and not so much the very important amendments that relates to the prospect of a redress number for those who are falsely flagged on a false positive basis because they share a name with someone on the list, but the, the prospect of an appeal by persons who are in fact the person who's on the list because they actually are the people the government had in mind and they listed that person. There are instances where that person says, I'm not really that dangerous, please, I shouldn't be on this list. You're, you have a very low standard that you've applied in, in, in saying that I'm, I'm, I pose this threat in, in relation to 
either aviation security or the prospect I may go abroad and engage in terrorist activity, I shouldn't be on this list. The system that was set up in 2015 to allow for appeals by these people and allows the federal court, where the appeals will go, to use secret information in, in what I'll call a closed material proceeding. That is a proceeding in which uh, secret information can be used. The person who's appealing is excluded. It's the judge uh, in, uh, the term is in camera, ex parte, by themselves in a closed court with the government witness who decides whether there's a justification for the listing. In other circumstances where we have such proceedings, and the most famous example is the uh, immigration security certificate context, as a constitutional necessity, there has to be a special advocate to represent the interests of the person who's implicated, in that case, by a security certificate. Now, part of the reason for that is that when you're subject to a security certificate, you're potentially detained indefinitely, at least for a very long time, and or removable possibly to maltreatment, and so the consequences are very high, which triggers what's known as Section 7 of the Charter, which obliges uh, fundamental justice and a fair process, and special advocates part of that. The, the issues at play when you're talking to a fly, or I would add uh, passport revocation, are slightly different in the sense that you're talking about limiting people's capacity, in, in this case, to fly. That could raise its own liberty interests under Section 7 and perhaps mobility rights in terms of your ability to leave the country. There could be charter issues in play, and so there could be a constitutional obligation to have a special advocate. Uh, I don't see, it from a policy perspective, any reason not to go with a special advocate. And, and so part of the conversation was, well, the court on its, on its own could... Uh, permit the assistance of what's known as an amicus curiae to support the court. And you want to make your comment. I want to make a joke because <laughs> amicus is also the name of the mascot right. of the Supreme Court. Because it translates into friend of the court. I, I know. Mean, who's a bigger friend of the Supreme Court than an, a wise old owl? It's a little owl. <laughs> right. It is like walking around the Supreme Court. I feel court. so badly for the person who's in that costume on Canada Day. It's, so <laughs> it's like 40 degrees <laughs> and he's walking around like a stuffed owl in a robe and with fur That's on terrible. it. <laughs> it was wonderful. It's a Section 12 I violation. I love her. So. I love I love amicus. I, I I need an amicus like like doll or something. Like, I bet you could buy one. Like you, you're I, you're a I've, lawyer. I've often thought that the Supreme Court would be sued by the Senate because they, the Senate came out with that book called The Wise Old Owls, which was advancing the importance of the Senate. Yes. So I'm, I wonder who came up with the mascot versus the book first and can appropriate the image of an owl for their purposes. I personally would love to see a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, but I have to say, I, this is getting way off topic. It is, but, okay, sorry. But, but I have to say, the new, my new favorite thing is someone pointed out the federal court logo, which is some kind of seahorse caribou with wings. <laughs> well, and they have a very interesting jurisdiction that covers a lot of different modalities of travel, so. <laughs> I know, but like, who, I, I don't know who dropped the acid to come up with that logo, yeah. but it is the most amazing logo, and federal court people, if you hear me, please send me a mug, because that is some cool, cool stuff. That is cool. They have I a mean, new website, too, the federal courts. Nice, I mean, nice and someone pointed out, like, that should be, like, why isn't that, like, like a, a winged caribou seahorse should definitely be <laughs> some kind of NHL mascot. <laughs> That's true. Like, that is amazing. Maybe even a team. Right. Okay, okay so back, totally back to the, the topic here. Right. So, okay. um, catching up the National Security Law podcast <laughs> in terms of frivolous conversation. <laughs> here we go. So... An amicus is different from a special advocate, and that's one of the issues upon which a lot of this testimony uh, focused. Uh, an amicus is, serves essentially at the pleasure of the court and has only th the role that the court assigns it. And so it could be an adversarial role to challenge the government's position, or it could be something less than adversarial. A special advocate, which exists by statute under the immigration law, has the obligation to advance the interests of the uh, party who's excluded from the proceeding and also Incidentally, also the obligation to press for more disclosure. 
really do you need not to disclose this to the interested party? Couldn't this go out? Couldn't it be redacted? And those are two essential roles that uh, I think probably are best embedded in statute. I'd add also that the special advocate has a special advocate program with a, an administrative support unit and the prospect of uh, a little bit of administrative support that wouldn't necessarily exist in the same way for an amicus who's appointed by the court, who presumably is paid by the court. Um, and so uh, I, there is a distinction. I think it's it might be important. I, I'm not going to advance the argument that it, C-59 should be amended, but certainly going forward, I don't see a downside to embedding a special advocate into the appeal processes where you've got closed material proceedings, where at issue is secret evidence that really is not, not otherwise adversarially challenged. So it's not there now, and you think it should be added in yeah. eventually, not now, please, Senate. No, I, and I, so I'm, again, it's all my list of things that are left undone, uh, and, and that's a fairly long list, but uh, my testimony amounted in terms of C-59 is it's a really good bill. Let's not chase the perfect and jeopardize the very good. Uh, and here's a long list of things that really one should look at in the next parliament because we have to become habituated to regular updates of national security law because with the passage of time, you're almost certain to accrue uncertainty and uncertainty is a very bad thing in national security law. Absolutely. Let's get used to doing this update on a regular basis, not just once every generation. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe this is a, a, you know, a page we can have on the blog is, is Intrepid Podcast National Security Law wish list. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> feel free to use it. Right. So speaking of no-fly, yeah. there was another story. Yes, there's this lawsuit. So uh, yes. you know, again, you know, sort of the same theme in the app. And I mean, this was the Prime Minister's India visit. Apparently, the National Post reported a couple of weeks ago that in the aftermath of the Prime Minister's India visit, uh, two uh, individuals, uh, Sikh Canadians, uh, found themselves added to the Canada no-fly list. And then they, and it's under the Secure uh, Air Travel Act. Just to, SATA. Yeah, SATA. And they're filing court challenges. And so this is a challenge. I haven't seen the pleadings. That's sort of one of the downsides. It's very hard unless the lawyer sends them to you to get these pleadings because they're not necessarily posted anywhere. My assumption is the pleadings will, first of all, challenge the merits on sort of administrative law grounds. But of course, those issues will be decided uh, in the closed proceedings based on secret evidence I suspect this might be our opportunity to see a constitutional challenge brought suggesting that in the absence of a special advocate and because Section 7 liberty interests and Section 6 mobility interests are at play, that it's a constitutional violence in the absence of a statutorily created uh, special advocate system. And so uh, perhaps this will be the test that drives <laughs> yet another round of national security amendments, which sadly have often been dra driven in the past by uh, uh, constitutional, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> constitutional cases rather than preemptive uh, legislating. So next I have on the list, uh, again, friend of the podcast, Stuart Bell, he, who's been reporting a lot on dangerous Canadians. And certainly we've seen Donald Trump tweet a lot that he's angry at the European countries. He didn't mention Canada by name, but we're, we're in that group of, of countries who are not repatriating individuals who are presently held in Kurdish prison camps. And yeah. what's interesting is Stuart Bell, I think he didn't just look at Syria. Yeah, he actually broader. did a series. The fact that, you know, Canada, Canadians have gone abroad to many different countries and have supported supported or participated in, to, to make it legal, I hope you're impressed, participated <laughs> in violent yeah. extremist activity. Right. So it's a good series, and I think everyone should read it, and we think it shows a number of things. One, we, we have a history of this, and two, it shows that this is why national security agencies work very hard to stop Canadians from leaving is because they actually go abroad and kill people. And if we knew of other countries that were sending or allowing their people to come over to Canada to kill Canadians, we would be upset. So it applies to us too. And thirdly, I think it also just goes to show that, you know, after the Islamic State falls, this is going to happen again. Yeah. You know, this isn't something that just is going to stop with the Islamic State. There's going to be another extremist movement, whatever it is. 
and they're going to try and do the same. So this is something that we will continue to grapple with, and we need to get our legislative house in order in order to make sure that, that we can stop it and make sure that we have the right tools in place. Yeah, and intelligence to evidence solved so that we can actually prosecute people for their extraterritorial crimes. You can drink crimes. now. You can right. drink now, listeners. So I did, I, by the way, I did, mention, I did mention that in the Senate hearings. I managed to weave that in. Intelligence to evidence yeah, or yeah. the drinking game? Well, I don't think anyone referred to the drinking game. I think that would be indecorous to do it. But, but yeah, well, really, intelligence to evidence. Senate. Okay, I, I, I managed to weave that in and, and hope I made a pitch for the Senate committee to take a watching brief and perhaps hold hearings on intelligence debits to sort of pursue that uh, drive in order to encourage solutions, many of which are operational and perhaps the residual ones will be legal. So, well, you know, as long as, long as you got it in there somewhere, <laughs> yeah, I have to. Uh, I have, you know, I have a reputation to maintain. Uh, so, I, I agree with you completely. And the other subtext is the issue of a citizenship revocation, which, of course, we had on the books after what 2014 up until about two years ago. Uh, the citizenship revocation was repealed as one of the first bills under the current government. My view on citizenship revocation all along has been, well, first of all, the construct of the 2014 Act. If I was trying to write it in a way that would make a constitutional challenge easy, it would have looked a little bit like the way it was written. Uh, so there's a, there was a constitutional issue there. More than that, there was a broader policy issue. And I've never really uh, been persuaded that citizenship revocation is good policy because uh, it essentially takes those who have often, if not always been radicalized in Canada, gone abroad, done significant injury in places which frankly are often quite fragile and yes. sort of augmented uh, conflicts in, in those regions. And then we disclaim any kind of responsibility by revoking their citizenship. Uh, it's a sort of nimbyism, if you will, yeah. uh, not in my backyard. Uh, and uh, in other words, we export peril. Uh, simply through citizenship revocation. And we can have also a race for citizenship revocations, right? So we try to revoke another country. So uh, the Jack Letts case is a good example of that. Uh, British-Canadian dual national. If we still had revocation, perhaps we'd be rushing with the British uh, to see who would revoke first and thus have to take charge of this individual uh, going forward. I, I just don't think it's good policy. It's, it's good policy, but there's also good national security reasons why I think it's bad, which is that I, I did my PhD on prisoners of war, and um, one of the things was that uh, the Germans who were captured early on in the war were the most extreme ones. These are the people who had signed up on the dotted line. They weren't the later reluctant recruits who were, you know, forced to fight or whatever. And what ended up happening was the most radicalized individuals in, in these prisoners of war camps were able to dominate them, and they were able to radicalize other prisoners further. As a result of that, the extremists are able to run these camps. And my concern is if you have children, youth, other people in these camps. I mean, I'm assuming you're already in these camps because you were participating with a violent extremist group, although that would have to be proven in a court of law, of course. But the fact is, I worry that, you know, these children who may be spending years in these camps are being exposed to these ideas even more so than they would be in Canada. These are incubators, right. effectively, for violent extremism. So, because the, the Kurds don't have the resources to, to prevent right. this from happening, the it, it really is a mess, yep. and the Kurds are not in a position to be spending millions of dollars on these kinds of things. So, you know, Canada does have a responsibility. I know this is a poison pill for any government, mm -hmm. um, but the, we need to come up with some kind of solution. Yeah. I think we'd be best doing it if we sat down with our European allies, all agreed on a policy, all did it at the same time, and that might mitigate some of the political fear at home. I don't know if those discussions are happening. I, I agree with you, and I think that the, the the idea of a hothouse, certainly we've seen examples of that in, in the recent past, including the, the rise of Daesh, right, and the aftermath of the 
of the Iraq War in 2003 and the incarceration of uh, persons together and and Baghdadi, you've got to start that way. Right. So uh, it's an important issue, and it's not, and and the whole repatriation issue is then just kicked further down the field by the idea that you can revoke citizenship in the naive view that if you revoke their citizenship, they will no longer prove perilous to Canadians or Canadian interests. As if if there's no Canadians abroad or other kind of things to attack. Did we not just have an episode on hostage taking, for example? Um, And also, we have Canadian interests that straddle borders, and frankly, we have had a history of people, even without citizenship, being able to get into the country fraudulently and uh, and prove uh, dangerous, like uh, Hamid Razam, right, the Millennium Bomber. Yeah. Speaking of Baghdadi, I should say uh, he he showed up in a video. Uh, he's looking kind of pudgy. <laughs> apparently, apparently, just staying in a hole all day is uh, yeah, well, not good for your health. I, but who, who can tell what videos are? Also, really he really needs yeah. to get his brows done. It's yeah. not it's not good. <laughs> all so, right, so we're running out of time. We're running and, out of time. And, so and, two other quick things. Yeah. So there was the terrorism report, as we mentioned. Ah. Just quickly, it's been amended again. Yeah. It was amended originally to take out the word Sikh and talk about um, basically kind of separatists within India. And now I believe it's been amended again to take out the name of Sunni and Shia inspired. Sunni and Shia, right. Yeah. And I am of so, mixed So the views. rationale is that uh, the use of general categories of ethnicity or religion have the effect of painting an entire category of terrorism with uh, a broad brush. Yep. That's, that's the concern. I mean, the problem is we've been dancing around these terms for so long. We haven't been honest with Canadians, I think, about what these threats are. And then all of a sudden you put all this language out and people get really upset um, because it appears to be coming out of nowhere. I, I really am in, in kind of two sides. Like, I understand. Like I, I've talked with the National Council of Canadian Muslims before. I understand their concerns very much. I understand the concern of Sikh Canadians who came after me a lot on Twitter <laughs> last year. But I worry that this is a kind of form of politicization, yeah. right? It's it's kind of, we opened it up with the Sikhs and now the, the, the Shia and the Sunni feel the same way. And now we're just going to talk about things in vague terms. And that's not helpful. And it's not as honest as it could be. And I just wonder if there's a way we could go about saying this better. I mean, I think the way in government we used to get around it was to talk about ISIS-inspired and... and Al-Qaeda or ISIS-inspired. Which, I mean, the, the problem with that is that it doesn't actually cover all forms of Sunni Islamist extremism because there's other groups other than those two, yeah. even though they're not as prominent. But by and large, um, I think that's one way of getting around it. It's uh, tough because, you know, vocabulary becomes very important, especially because you're talking about an ideological crime. Yeah. Right. And so you have to find a term that will encapsulate the ideology without using so broad a brush that those who share one quality but not another, that is the preoccupation with violence, don't feel that they've been singled out. And 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 certainly under the last government this is an issue. I've struggled with this in my own scholarship, right? So I've I've preferred AQ or Daesh, even, even the issue of Daesh versus ISIS, right? Yeah, uh, I just, I don't say Daesh because uh, I think I say it bad. <laughs> but. So uh, it's certainly a struggle. I, in my most recent work, I've, I've been persuaded that terms like uh, Islamist uh, does have a, a resonance in, in terms of uh, capturing a particular variant of an ideology, Islamist-inspired violence, but I'm, I'm sure that's an imperfect uh, proxy for what we're trying to capture as well. And so even when talking about white nationalists, right, so we're quite happy using this term, it seems, in popular parlance of white nationalism, 
really, I mean, are we talking about that? Are we talking about white supremacy? Are we talk, should we even use the term white? Should it be majoritarian supremacy? I don't know. I mean, these are all uh, contested terms. Identitarian. Uh, yeah, they're all contested terms, and there's no perfect solution, it seems to me. And but the, the problem is, if you're a government, you have to decide upon a vocabulary to use. And I mean, I used to I used to contribute to writing these reports. It yeah. is not fun. I mean, I don't think we really use the word interagency process. I think that's an American term, but that's basically what this is. It's like you have all the national security groups in Canada trying to sit down and come up with a term, and it's, it's not. It's uh, a fun party. Um, so I kind of feel sorry for them, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with this report in 2019. Yeah. Well, you know, so the only thing I can think of is, and I've done this to a certain degree in some of my scholarship, is drop a footnote where I say, here's a term that I'm going to use, and here's the how I, I define that term. Yeah. So to incorporate a definition section. And that, here's why. And here's why. Yeah. And so that might allow you to, to to grapple with the substantive content, which is really important, like describe the nature of the ideology, and then choose a label that's relatively innocuous, but because you've defined it in a careful way, you've not reduced it of any content. So finally, I think the last thing we'll end on is the CRTC RCMP yeah. situation. So this is a story that came out in, in the end of March, and it was we found out by a press release that uh, the Canadian police the RCMP raided the residence of a Toronto uh, individual who's a software developer. Uh, the software was called Orcus Remote Administration. This is basically a tool that helps you kind of control computers from, from far away. And, and so this tool was being described as a remote administration tool, but I, a lot of people felt that actually it was a little bit more malicious in nature, that it actually was behaving as a remote access trojan. So it was a way to run computers without people, without, without their knowledge and, and things like that. And if you look, a lot of my background for this actually comes from Krebs on Security, which is one of my favorite cyber blogs. And the advertisement for it was a little, it's a little rat because remote access tool versus remote access Trojan. I think he's just being a little vague, uh, the owner here. It's a little rat and he's holding onto a Bitcoin. So presumably it's something you could use to, to, to assist you in, in, in Bitcoin mining without other people knowing it. The, the, the official press release, it was the end of March, it, it basically said the RCMP, and then this is the part where kind of my jaw dropped, was the, the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, yeah. uh, conducted this uh, search warrant. So, and I was like, One of huh. the ones, yeah. And, and you actually looked a little bit into this. Yeah, so, so the investigation, as I understand, it straddles borders, so it also involves the Australian Federal Police, but the CRTC has jurisdiction under the anti-spam legislation, mm -hmm. which was introduced a few years ago, and so the anti-spam legislation, it actually has a provision that says you can't install something on a computer system that as you can't remotely create a bot uh, through software without consent of the, of the computer owner. Uh, and so the CRTC has enforcement jurisdiction under those provisions. Uh, there's an administrative penalty that's at, at play potentially if you do these things in violation of the anti-spam legislation. So it's a regulatory offense. And you can execute warrants in support of investigating these regulatory offenses. And the entity that has the power to execute these warrants, which they receive, uh, the warrants would be issued by a, by a judge. The entity that's uh, executing these warrants is the CRTC, and so the CRTC would be performing its regulatory function under the anti-spam legislation. The RCMP is exercising its jurisdiction under the criminal code. In this case, I, I would assume it's mischief to a computer system that's at play, which is a criminal code offense we've talked about in the past, and they've jointly executed these different warrants. And so the one wrinkle here, by the way, is that there is a constitutional rule that I don't know that it would apply necessarily here, because these are both warranted uh, searches. But sometimes the regulatory authorities have broader search powers because they're not doing criminal investigations. And 
in circumstances where they might collect information on those on those broader uh, powers, say the, the classic examples, tax uh, audits, they can't just flip it over to the police uh, and do an end run around the warrant requirements that would otherwise apply to the police. Uh, and so if you have sort of a parallel investigations by a regulatory body and a police body, you have to be sure that your search authorities line up Right. So that you're not sort of you end up with sort of an internal information sharing in a, in, sure. a, in a way that violates the charter. Now, again, in, in this case, we're talking about warrants in both instances. So I assume those concerns are somewhat obviated. Uh, but uh, anyway, an interesting case. Yeah, no, it is. Um, a few years ago, the U.S. Postal Service had a, a police crime show that they that they funded. And I was kind of thinking, could the CRTC have the same? Like, hmm. CRTC, national security spies. Like, it could be like a whole... It could be like a whole YouTube series, and I'm happy to be your consultant, CRTC. That's right. Well, I think most of the anti-spam stuff is probably a lot less uh, uh, interesting than, than this case. No, no, it's very interesting, Craig. <laughs> very interesting. Okay, I so think we've actually we've exceeded run our out. time. Oh, yeah. And so who who knew that we would get through all these things? Uh, and, and there's still so time. much more, but yeah. for another day. Okay. Well, thanks very much, everyone, and we will be back in, in due course. Uh, we have some plans uh, for more guests and more topics. And so thanks very much, uh, as always, uh, for being a listener. And uh, we, we don't do this enough, I suppose. We, we, if, if you find us useful, tell your friends and family. Leave a rating on iTunes. iTunes. It's actually a good way to actually find more listeners. And so we always, we're doing this, uh, frankly, uh, I don't know, why are we doing this? We're doing uh, this to be helpful. And so if you find us helpful. no one else will talk to me about this, Craig. <laughs> Literally no one. And give us, a, <laughs> give us a nice review on iTunes. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you so much. See you next time. Bye-bye.